Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Ponos Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics and about other Russian Eurasia related topics. In just a few days, Russians will go to the polls to vote for their national legislators. There are also about 40 regional races in a dozen gubernatorial elections. The year preceding this year's election day has been marked by stepped-up repressions against those who dare demonstrate public disloyalty to the Kremlin. The turning point may be traced back to August 2020, when Alexei Navalny, who had been for years the target of harassment, physical attacks, fines and administrative arrests, was poisoned with a nerve agent. After his recovery in Germany and his return to Russia, he was sentenced to a prison term. His arrest provoked large-scale protest rallies across Russia that were suppressed with unprecedented brutality. Navalny's anti-corruption foundation has since been labeled an extremist organization and destroyed. Those of his associates who have not fled abroad have been put under house arrest and disenfranchised. A special law has been hastily adopted that makes ineligible for elective office anyone who had at any time donated to or otherwise assisted the Anti-Corruption Foundation. The law has been enforced retroactively. The government clamped down harder on the participants of political protests, on the media outlets, and on individual journalists. Unwelcome political activists seeking to get on the ballot have been disqualified or otherwise barred from running in most egregious ways. The September election may be one, though not the only reason, for the current crackdown. Anyway, the political field appears to be securely cleansed of unwanted competition, and there is no doubt that the pro-Kremlin United Russia Party will preserve its habitual dominance in the national legislature. But is there more to this campaign than yet another preordained result? I'm talking about it with two leading experts in the Russian electoral politics. Ben Noble, assistant professor in Russian politics at University College London, associate fellow at Chatham House and senior research fellow at the Highest School of Economics in Moscow. And Nikolai Petrov, visiting senior research fellow at Chatham House and the head of the Center for Political Geographic Studies in Moscow. Uh, Nikolai, my first question is to you. Would you say the Kremlin's measures aimed at securing a majority for United Russia have been unprecedented? Why is that? What are the challenges faced by the Kremlin? Yes, Marsha, I think these measures look unprecedented. And it looks like the Kremlin is doing too much if to imagine that uh, results of forthcoming elections are almost predefined. And I do think there are two major reasons why it looks so. One is connected to the fact that we do have now a political regime with a very different kind of legitimacy. This new legitimacy doesn't come from elections. That's why it's not needed that much for the Kremlin to use elections in order to increase legitimacy. It's needed rather to avoid any damage for existing legitimacy. And this means, among other things, not to allow anybody any legal vocal criticism of Putin and regime in general. That's why all candidates who could not be of any threat for the Kremlin in terms of probable winning elections, they've been not allowed to participate in the race. And the second reason, I think, is connected with the fact that 
what we see now is not that much about Duma elections, but it's more important thing connected with the political transformation and what will happen in 2024 when all those measures undertaken and all different institutions which did emerge, the repressive legislation and everything else, it did appear now, but it's not aimed that much in order to provide good results in September 2021, but it's needed for the Kremlin to provide political transformation smoothly. Ben, do you agree with Gwali's analysis? And uh, would you please talk more about what political scientists and experts um, call a menu of manipulations? What are some of the manipulations and tricks the Russian authorities have been using to ensure the desired result this time? Yeah, I agree and I sort of disagree with what Collier has said. I think in on the whole, the extent to which the Kremlin is nervous is unprecedented, even if that might be quite surprising to some listeners, given the fact that it's highly likely that United Russia is going to re-secure a constitutional majority in the state Duma. And I think we can realise that nervousness by looking at the steps taken by the Kremlin in the run-up to the elections. And lots of these steps aren't new. They happen before lots of elections, but I think that it's unprecedented the degree to which they are being used. So uh, items in the, that menu of manipulation, and that's a phrase that's associated with the political scientist Andrea Schedler, uh, include things like skewed media coverage, include things like one-off payments that Putin is making to pensioners, members of the military and law enforcement, as well as more traditional, more repressive ways in which the Kremlin can try and unlevel the electoral playing field, like locking up Alexei Navalny like labelling his organisations extremists. Um, and, and there are lots of other items. I'm not going to list them, but maybe mentioning a few more. There's evidence that people in their workplaces are being coerced to vote for United Russia. And we know that Alexei Navalny's tactical voting project, Smart Voting, is being frustrated in a number of ways, including Roskomnadzor, the communications regulator, blocking the website. But in all of this, we can very often focus on these steps that are being taken in order to try and persuade people or force people to vote for United Russia. We shouldn't forget, though, the significant section of society in Russia that are going to support United Russia anyway, because they see this party as being the party of Putin, and they associate Putin with a political leadership that has improved their lives, uh, or they think that with Putin, they know the system that they have. It might not be perfect, but there is the fear of the unknown and the fear of instability which the Kremlin itself plays on. So I think, as I say, as a whole, the Kremlin is unprecedented in its nervousness, but lots of these tricks have been used before, but perhaps not with the degree that we're seeing in the run-up to these elections. Thank you, Ben. I have a follow-up question. How do you estimate the share of those in Russia who support Putin without being pressured? And uh, um, how is the pro-Kremlin party United Russia associated with Putin? Putin is not a member of that party, is he? Yeah, it's really interesting that, that Putin is associated with the party and technically he's not a member. He's often referred to as the leader 
of the party. And certainly in August, the party held a congress during which they used the slogan that the party was uh, Team Putin. And that very much associated the party in the minds of voters with the president. And, you know, this is a type of move that we see in lots of different political systems, not just in Russia, but in democracies, when particular parties will ride on the coattails of sitting presidents. When it comes to that share of the population who are going to uh, vote for United Russia uh, uh, without being pressured or without being incentivized uh, to do so in the run-up to the elections? That is a very, very tricky question. But I think looking at those one-off payments, we get a sense of Putin's traditional support base. So these are the segments of society uh, whose livelihood depends on the state. So these are people who receive payments from the state, like pensioners, members of the military and law enforcement. And that would be uh, a, a sort of sociological question to work out which uh, of those segments of society are going to vote for United Russia, regardless of these sticks and carrots. But it's, you know, if we're talking about social science, it's a really tricky question to work out um, uh, how people would vote regardless of these steps being taken. And yet I think it isn't controversial to say that without lots of these steps being taken, a significant number of people would still vote uh, for Putin uh, and United Russia. And the reason why I think it's an important point to make uh, is because elections in Russia aren't simply a question of manipulation. We know that Putin's approval ratings now uh, are just above 60%. Of course, those approval ratings have to be contextualised. They're uh, the approval ratings in a media environment in which you don't come across on state aligned media bad messages about the president. And so we might have a very, very different picture of Putin's approval ratings in a different media environment. But it's still, I think, an important part of the story that we shouldn't forget to tell. Then, so apparently uh, the Kremlin doesn't have to be so nervous. The results do seem to be predetermined, and yet uh, it is nervous, and we see that. So um, what is the reason for that? And why should we be interested in this election if uh, there is uh, no intrigue and if the Kremlin is basically assured of the desired result? There are a few answers to that, Masha. The first one, I think, is that... The Kremlin is highly, highly unlikely to lose a majority in the state Duma, but maybe it's more nervous that it could lose a supermajority. And the reason why it's nervous about losing a supermajority is that that would be a very public embarrassment, that it would be a chink in the armour and the Kremlin is very concerned with keeping up uh, an image of invincibility, this idea that it's dominant, that it's not challenged. And so if it were to lose that constitutional majority, then that would be a bit, of, a bit of evidence that would show that it's less popular than it was in 2016. And I think within the Kremlin, they're worried that that could snowball. Another response to the question is saying that the Kremlin is nervous, and that's precisely why it's taking these steps and carrying out these unprecedented moves, including against Navalny and his movement. So it's just a different way of thinking about nervousness and using that um, uh, to explain the items being used in the menu of manipulation. 
Nikolai, what about the、uh, United Russia's rivals? There are rivals that have been disenfranchised. There are rivals that are not even allowed to be on the ballot. But there are also the so-called systemic parties that compete with United Russia in this election. How has the Kremlin treated them, and is there any difference? Between now and previous election cycles, in how the Kremlin treats the United Russia rivals, I would start first with saying that the United Russia isn't a party; it's just an empty shell. And so far, we did not see any attempts of、uh, the Kremlin to make it alive. That's why, when speaking about rivals, we should not、uh, take care that much. About potential competitors, but we should have in mind also that the United Russia isn't any kind of consolidated political party, and there are、uh, tensions and different factions within the United Russia. There is People's Front, which uses the United Russia as a way to participate in elections, but usually Communist Party of Russian Federation. Is considered to be the major systemic rival, and this is another interesting story because until recently, if to speak about Russia's party landscape, it was possible to see only two parties in proper sense. One of them is the Communist Party; another one consisted of Alexei Navalny's structures, and it's almost dismantled now. So the Communist Party, unlike the United Russia, is very real thing. Among other things, it means that there is certain relationship and sometimes serious tension between regional branches of the Communist Party and federal leadership. And it's not that complicated for the Kremlin to get loyalty of the federal leadership, but the cost can be very high, and the cost can be inability of this communist leadership to keep control over the party. In regions, that's why the Kremlin is balancing. From one side, it does want、uh, complete loyalty. From other side, it faces the risk of losing control through its usual levers. That's why this time we do see very different approach. The Kremlin is、uh, much more aggressive with regard to the Communist Party, and in my view, there can be two. Explanations they do not contradict each other. One is that Communist Party is really getting more votes, higher support, and what the United Russia has lost in different sociological polls partly came to the Communist Party. It's not the problem for the Kremlin to deal with communists at the next state Duma, but the Kremlin hates. To let communists to strengthen too much, because it will be more expensive for it to deal with the communist party. The second explanation I can offer is connected to the fact that it's very interesting. Last year, Alexander Kinev, our great knowledgeable expert on elections, has noticed that those votes lost by the United Russia were not caught. By the Communist Party and were not caught by the Liberal Democratic Party as it was taking place in past, meaning that the Kremlin is pretty much worried about the fact that the United Russia loses votes, but two other major systemic parties or three major systemic parties, if to have in mind the Just Russia as well, 
are not getting these votes. And that's why I think it works in favor of the Kremlin just to demonstrate that the Communist Party is not that loyal. It's not a kind of a junior partner. And that's why I think we do see certain tension between the Kremlin and the Communist Party, which is not that real, but it's a kind of demonstration which helps the Kremlin to achieve its goal. Right. And I think uh, two uh, rather prominent members of the Communist Party have been disqualified in a rather egregious way. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. But the very fact that Pavel Grudinin, one of them who was included into the first three leading Federalist communists, he was excluded from the race. But the very fact that he was put there was considered to be a kind of a gesture, demonstration that the Communist Party is not absolutely controlled, absolutely loyal to the Kremlin. So we never know whether this pressure, which is pretty clear, is real pressure or not, because there are some other examples. We can mention, for example, the fact that in Ulyanovsk region, the incumbent governor, well, on the eve of elections, and we do have not only federal but uh, gubernatorial regional elections, uh, he was replaced by the communist candidate. So the Kremlin eagerly gave or offered communist party control over Ulyanovsk region, which is of very essential symbolic importance because this is the region where Vladimir Lenin has been born and spent the first years of his of his life. So not only the Kremlin is aggressive with regard to the Communist Party, but sometimes it demonstrates very good will with regard to communists. So Ben, we've talked about the methods used to bar unwanted candidates. What about the actual vote and the vote count? What can the Kremlin do at this stage to ensure the desired result? We were talking about before the election, during the campaign, but what can be done on the day of the vote? And actually, it's not just day, but days. So can you please talk about that? Yeah, so when speaking about the menu of manipulation, it's one of the reasons why I think it's a useful concept is because it makes the story not just about ballot stuffing. And we're used to seeing videos going viral um, from election days in Russia of ballots being stuffed and falsification taking place on the day. But I would say that the pre-election, the upstream effects are as important, if not more important. But your question is, well, what can the Kremlin do on the three days of voting? Well, the first point is that three days of voting are taking place. That is an innovation begun with the nationwide vote for constitutional changes in 2020 that was originally justified in terms of the epidemiological situation. The authorities said that it would reduce the number of people in a polling station at any particular moment. And it's difficult to argue with that logic. However, there's a slightly more sinister spin to it that by spreading the vote across three days, it can be easier to hide falsification. It can also be easier for the authorities to mobilise different portions of the vote, especially those sections of society that the authorities think would vote for United Russia, uh, uh, and also allows the authorities to keep tabs and get a sense of how many people have voted, and they can then calibrate their uh, incentives or suppression of the turnout accordingly for those different segments of society. We also know that electronic voting 
is taking place in these elections in a way that it hasn't in previous elections. So the spread, the number of people involved, and there has been reporting that some people have been pressured to take part in electronic voting. And it's interest. it will be interesting to see whether that electronic voting is carried out in a, a transparent and honest way or not. So there are various things that the authorities can do on the day. And also Nova Gazeta has reported a recording which it claims is of a training session that took place in Karolyov, which is a city in the Moscow region, in which election officials are being told, firstly, the figures that parties should achieve, but also the steps that can be taken in order to achieve them. That has that particular reporting has been criticised, as in what has been reported, the activities has been criticised by the head of the Central Electoral Commission, Ella Panfilova. She said that an investigation should take place and those involved should be brought to justice. However, it's likely that this story is repeated across the Federation, that there are other individual Uh, steps being taken in order to manipulate the vote on the day itself. And yet, always with this question, there is lots of difficulty in working out how widespread these practices are, which is why we have the field of electoral forensics. So people, after the fact, can look at the electoral results and not rely on first-hand evidence of what happens in polling stations, but use statistical analysis to work out whether it seems as though there are anomalies. Nicola, can you please talk about the electoral geography and the regions factor in the current elections? According to Alexander Kunev, who you already mentioned, a very knowledgeable, prominent expert in electoral politics, in some regions, uh, local campaigns may turn out to be not as tightly controlled as the Duma vote. Do you agree with that? And uh, what do you expect uh, to see in maybe some of the regions that you'd like to talk about? It's very important to look at elections, having in mind that Russia is composed uh, from very different regions and electoral behavior in different regions can be very different. Let me illustrate this idea by the fact that so-called electoral sultanates, uh, this is the term coined by Dmitry Areshkin, they do consist of 24 regions out of 85, This is approximately the same share of voters, but this is half of votes. The United Russia and President Putin in recent presidential elections did get, meaning that the Kremlin counts not only on different technological tricks like, say, three days voting and so on, but also the Kremlin counts that there are regions, especially ethnic republics, Caucasian republics, where the reported turnout can be up to 100% with almost the same voter support of the party of power or who else is needed. Nevertheless, there is very serious problem connected with big cities. It appeared in 2011-2012 when political protests took place And the initial reaction of the Kremlin was to change districting. So now when it goes about single mandate races, we do have scheme of electoral districts, which consist of certain parts of central cities, big cities, regional centers, where 
voters are not that eager to support the party of power, but there are good portions of uh, countryside uh, added to them. Not only it makes it much more complicated, if possible, for unwanted candidates to campaign, but it makes it possible to report about any results needed. And the reason why is that votes at the center of uh, the region can be shared by different candidates, and that's how the Kremlin can even promote certain electoral competition. But uh, votes in the countryside are very consolidated and are given to the needed candidate who wins elections. That's why when evaluating chances for 225 single-mandate races, experts agree that the Kremlin will get at least 180 out of all these races, meaning that the biggest portion of mandates which the Kremlin will get comes from single-mandate districts. Some experts are saying that the Kremlin can lose up to 40 districts. Others are speaking about 25 districts, but nevertheless, not only we should have in mind the general outcome, but we should have in mind symbolic roles certain regions are playing. And this is, uh, first of all, about two capitals, about Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's why I would agree in general that in some regions, local campaigns are not that much under the centralized pressure. But in some regions, like in St. Petersburg, where elections to regional city legislative assembly is going on, the pressure is even harder than the pressure in elections to the state Duma. And there is so-called Vishnevsky's case, which has been described and analyzed that well by Ben in his recent article in the Moscow Times. So finally, to make it shorter, I would say that this time, first of all, we do see very serious pressure, which is going on at all levels, including municipal elections. And this is different from what we've seen one electoral cycle ago. But second, this pressure differs, and it can be less so in those regions which are considered by the Kremlin less important, but it it can be even more hard uh, in those regions which are very important from the point of view of the Kremlin. Okay. Then these days you read different opinions coming from electoral and political experts and from political commentators on what the right electoral behavior should be for those voters who actually are not happy to see the Kremlin to be fully in control of the election results. Some say there is no point to come to the polls anyway, because everything is so tightly controlled. Others, however, argue that this is exactly what the Kremlin wants disgruntled voters to do. Uh, stay home and don't not get in the way of the desired of the result desired by the Kremlin, and therefore the right strategy, those commentators say, is to come to the polls regardless of the Kremlin's manipulations. What do you think about those arguments and the uh, Navalny's smart vote uh, strategy that he designed and that some of his associates are still trying to uh, to use to pursue? Does it make any sense anymore? 
It's interesting when talking about Navalny's smart voting project, because in the past, Navalny himself has said, don't take part in elections. They're a sham. Boycott them, because if you take part in them, it's not going to make a difference. The Kremlin has sewn the elections up. And what's more, you will, in a sense, be giving legitimacy to the Kremlin's sham. So Navalny himself has said that before, but I think the reason why he's changed from that position uh, ties in with what you said, that the Kremlin is precisely hoping on the opposition increasing in their despondency, that the level of political apathy is going up so they don't take part, which means that if the Kremlin can mobilise those portions of society that are prepared, willing to vote for United Russia then that's the easiest way for it to win an election. And so I think that's the reason why we've seen people saying, no, take part in the elections. You're not suggesting by taking part that you think immediately you're going to be able to remove United Russia and get rid of its majority in the state Duma. But that slowly but surely, people can demonstrate that taking part in elections can make a difference. And this very much ties to the spirit of smart voting. It has been, uh, since its inception, about small gains, and especially gains at the regional and local levels. Even though smart voting is being used for the state Duma elections, I think Team Navalny would admit that they're not expecting a spectacular success. And we can see research done by the two Russian political scientists, Mikhail Turchenko and Grigory Golosov, showing that smart voting can make a difference. Yes, it depends on the level of the elections at which smart voting is used and how effective it can be. It also depends on geography. It seems to be, according to their analysis, that smart voting is best, uh, is most effective in big cities. But I think the hope is that with these tactical voting projects like smart voting that can coordinate the opposition vote to more effectively present a challenge to United Russia, that that might lead to small gains. And it could have other effects like emboldening the currently systemic opposition party, the Communist Party, to increase its flirtation with the non-systemic boundary and to encourage the party to challenge the Kremlin more often because the thinking would be that if they do that, then they will more likely be positioned in smart voting to be picked as the the candidates who are most likely challenge United Russia. And then in the longer term, the hope is that factions within the elite might notice that uh, these other parties are being more effective in elections and that could lead to defections from United Russia but also within the political regime more broadly. So Nikolai, my last and the most difficult question is to you. Based on what we know about the preparations for the upcoming election, about the uh, Kremlin's intentions and Kremlin tactics and Kremlin's manipulations, and based on the public mood, what are your expectations for the next three years? And of course, for the main event, the 2024 presidential election. I think 2024 presidential elections are of vital importance and it can be the explanation of the Kremlin tactics well observed now. And uh, I think this is what the whole story is about. And this is not only, not just about elections, but it's about finishing the system's transformation. And September Duma elections are finishing one important stage of this transformation. 
and uh, giving start to another one. And it's very important when analyzing ongoing elections to have this in mind, especially to think in terms that the transformation of the political regime, which has started uh, last year when President Putin came with his presidential address and the idea of the constitutional reform, it uh, looks to be more or less finished on the paper, but it should take a lot of time to let the system, the newly emerged system, to work. And that's why it's very important for the Kremlin to provide a maximum positive environment for finishing this political transformation. That's why I would see the huge pressure which is put onto the society and civil society and political parties as at the very important thing for the Kremlin. Like in 2012, the Kremlin has put huge pressure onto elites in order not to let factions of elites to join protesters and to make them much more dangerous for the system. Now it's going on in an opposite way. So elites are keeping silence, but this is temporary. And uh, immediately after elections, I would wait for large-scale personnel replacements and conflicts between different new bodies which did emerge and those bodies which did change their, their powers. And that's why it's so important for the Kremlin to avoid any kind of media support, any kind of mass support of certain groups of elites in case of inner elite fights. That's why I would say that all expectations that after September 19 Duma elections, the life will become easier and the pressure will become easier as well are not very well grounded in my view. And we'll see even more pressure onto the society and onto political elites after elections. Thank you. The picture is uh, uh, rather grim. Ben, do you want to share your wisdom on what's in store for Russia for the coming years? If you're turning to me, Masha, for a positive ending, a positive spin, it's really very tricky. Uh, and I don't think I'm going to be able to give that that positive ending. I agree with uh, Nikolai that going forward, it's unlikely that we're going to see a thaw from the Kremlin after the elections because of the degree to which they have shifted to this mode of governance. It's not new so to speak, but I think they're relying on repression and coercion to a, a degree that they just haven't before. And so it's, as I say, going to be very tricky for them to row back, to uh, reduce the pressure on independent media, on uh, uh, opposition um, uh, individuals and groups and movements. So I think um, winter has already been coming for a while, but I think we're going to be in a dark grey period um, for the next few years at least. Yeah, hard to disagree with that. And all that's left for us observers or experts is to keep track of these developments. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Masha. 